This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Couple of thank yous before we start this week's show. Firstly, as ever, to the sponsors of the programme. That's Media Masters. Uh, it's another podcast about the media uh, where you'll hear one to one interviews with creatives and execs. You'll find out a little about who's on their show this week later. And secondly, thank you. Uh, thank you for keeping us going through your monthly subscriptions. Uh, many of the US podcasts do their big pledge drives at this time of the year, but we're British, so we'll just ask the once, and then we'll feel embarrassed about it for the rest of the week. Go to themediapodcast.com now and help us out. Thank you. Sorry. Here's the show. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Media Podcast, I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Matt Kelly talks to us about the launch of The New European, the UK's latest national newspaper. The BBC announces heavy job cuts at their in-house production arm ahead of privatisation. But is that necessarily bad news for the industry? Plus, ITV showcased their first new dramas under Polly Hill, why are global boycotting next week's Radio Academy Awards, and yes... There's the Media Podcast Quiz, in which this week we don a headset and visit a virtual Fleet Street. It's all to come on today's Media Podcast. And joining me at the hospital club today are two Scousers. Can you believe it? They've just been discussing where they both went to school. Hey, hey. I know, he's posher than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes, I have the Director of Broadcasting at City University London with a long career in UK television as a journalist and executive, and she's a Scouser. It's Professor Liz Howell. Hello, Great. Liz. I'm fine. What's keeping you busy these days? Well, I'm still doing my research into expert women or the lack of them on television and uh, radio news and current affairs. That's really interesting. And I've just had a... Tell me there's an upward trend. Don't just say it's interesting. It's been like four years we've been talking about this now. Are there a few more women? There are a few more women. And I think there's definitely more awareness of the fact that there should be. And I've just had an academic article published, which is sort of exciting in that very tiny world. Muzzle tough. What was it about? It was about expert women. Okay, right. Well, there you are. Making your passion your academic subject. That's the way to do it. Uh, And next to Liz, the former local world digital chief who jumped to Archant and then became editor of The New European. Yes, we've spoken about the publication. Now we get to meet the man. Uh, It's Matt Kelly. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Uh, So we've got a fast-changing world of digital. That's what we were talking to you about last time you were on the show. That's a long time ago, yeah. About 12 months ago. Everything's changed. Now you're back in print. It's a bit ironic that that (laughs) my digital credentials have been cast asunder. Now I've launched a newspaper again. So, yeah, so the New European, uh, for new listeners, is a weekly newspaper for the 48%. That's right. Produced by Archant, who are, as you know, one of the bigger uh, regional newspaper and magazine companies based out in Norwich. Mm -hmm. 
So a kind of little Norwich's little island of remain in a sea of leave Brexiteers. And uh, anyway, we decided we'd launch a new newspaper in double quick time based on the fact that there didn't seem to be anything out there in the mainstream that really represented that sense of kind of dismay that mm. the uh, the referendum, I think, brought home to, to a lot of us. So got it out in nine days after the uh, referendum, which is, I believe, a uh, world record for... A, a newspaper launch, and it's been a great success. We but plan who to do. Had the idea? Should I blush as I say I had the idea? And you just you put your hand up and say, "Excuse me, can we launch a newspaper, well, please?" I well, mean, nine days. How you, do you get the money together? Well, Archin's a great company in that regard because it's big enough to do stuff like this, but it's small enough to do stuff like this as well. And I think the idea would have drowned in in bigger organisations, and smaller ones wouldn't have had the resource. But we've got the resource, and we've got the kind of impetus and the will to to have a go at stuff. We called it pop-up publishing because we thought, you know, maybe it'll just last for a few weeks and we'll we'll pull the plug. But we're now into week 15 and uh, sales are good. It's making money. Uh, it's making a lot of noise for the company, which is great. Um, so we're very happy with it. And Liz, do you think this is the future, pop-up newspapers? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, it's taken off in our office. Lots of people are reading it. One of my fellow academics, James Rogers, wrote for, I think, edition number 14. It's good fun as well. I mean, it's got things like Brexit or non-Brexit style issues, which I think are really great. And one of my colleagues said, you know, I'm sick of being a brimona and this paper's for me. And my brother works for a paper called The National in Scotland, very, very different yeah. in its ideas, but it's the same idea, you know, popped up in response to the way people feel. And I think that's the way newspapers started when you were touting them around coffee houses in London in the 17th, 18th century, and it's still there. And Media don't disappear. One media comes on top of another. You know, radio did not kill, kill the video. Video did not kill the radio star. Sorry, I mean, we're here, aren't we? But if you're looking for people to try and get into a, it seems odd to say pro-Remain argument now when, you know, the decision has been made to leave. But if you're trying to get people to click on a pro-Remain argument now online, mm-hmm. the difficulty, I guess, Matt, must be for your voice to be heard over Owen Jones or whoever it is. We've got a great social media uh, presence and we, we engage with that. We've got lots of people who are very supportive and passionate about what we're trying to do. The reality is, and this is where I think it's interesting from an industry point of view, if the New European had been a website, we wouldn't be talking about it now. You know, there would have been no revenue, no interest, no kudos for writing for it. So print still has a lot of magical qualities about it that digital cannot replicate. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, print's going to kill digital it's too early to say that um, you know it's possible but that's a joke folks but the <laughs> idea is listening the idea that it's going to be is a joke. <laughs> the idea that digital is going to completely uh traduce all the all the great elements of print i think is entirely wrong and there's a place for both platforms i couldn't agree more i think that's absolutely right as i said one platform just really enhances pl- platforms that went before and there is something about print about reading it about being able to flick through it it's great not to piss on anyone's chips though but <laughs> isn't it the case that you're able to make profit out of the new european because the price of advertising is much higher with print but actually if you did a website that was as successful in web terms isn't it the case that online advertising should be more expensive undervalued well yes you're absolutely right I mean, but but Advertising isn't really the model in the New European. The model is the two quid that people pay for it. Mm-hmm. And again, another great trait of print is you can carry it around. You can demonstrate that that's what you the read. club you're part of. You know, it's a sense of visible anger. Yeah. You know, we can all remember when the Independent launched and it had that great kind of 
the independent it is or you. And people carried it like a badge of honour. That's what we wanted to do with the new European. That's exactly right about print. It is a tribe that you belong to. And that's why it's so different from broadcasting, where the Communications Act means that, you know, public service broadcasters have to be even-handed. Print's completely different. It's what you vote. It's what you think. It's what you are. And it doesn't have to be anything other than cheerfully biased. Okay, well, this has been a fun conversation, but believe it or not, this isn't the media news. This is just the introductory let's get to know each other bit. <laughs> let's move on to some stories. Uh, because first up, we're going to talk about shock, horror, surprise, surprise, what a change. The BBC, uh, who this week it's been announced, are to cut 300 jobs from its new production arm, BBC Studios, uh, before they enter the commercial market next year. Uh, that's about 15% of the current workforce. That's quite a chunk, isn't it, Liz? 15%. Yes, it is a lot. But, I mean, really, we've been able to see this coming because uh, Tony Hall made the announcement about the um, programme-making arm, as it were, going off separately way back in, I think, 2013, actually in a speech at City University where where I work. So this has been on the cards. And I think some of the press coverage is a bit disingenuous. These shows are just going to be up for grabs to be made by independents. It's a bit of a a Bake Off rerun sort of scenario. You know, Bake Off was not made by the BBC. It was made by Love Productions for the BBC. It was still enormously popular, had that BBC whatever it is, sparkle, special thing about it. And that's what's going to be replicated with these other shows. It's really an organisational change. Um, The staff may lose their job as working for BBC Studios or whatever, but that doesn't mean they'll lose their jobs. And this is one of the great problems in communicating about media in Britain. People tend to think, if it's not the BBC, it won't happen. But if it's not the BBC, it frequently happens somewhere else. The thing is, though, there are BBC lifers, aren't there? That's a good thing and a bad thing. Who well, yes, it is a good thing and a bad thing. And it, it's, it's a horrible thing when you've got a job which you think is safe and it goes. No, but not but just for them. It's not always I, bad. I actually mean for the creative output. I mean, it's a bad thing because arguably there are some people that have creatively stagnated that just get employed from project to project and aren't very good at their jobs. That's the case in any large organisation. But it's a good thing, isn't it, that there are people who have committed their lives to public service broadcasting. We could be losing now. Oh, well, that makes it sound sort of terribly heroic, committing your life to public service. No, but it's true, isn't it? They could have a lot com- of them earned a lot more money but, elsewhere. Yeah, well, no, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think some people are very lucky to have committed their lives to public service broadcasting that's and to have a guaranteed salary. And we're not losing everybody. It's not everybody that's going. It's just a proportion. So let's get it into proportion. Matt? Well, I, I agree very much with the sentiment that people are lucky to work for the BBC rather than it's some great sacrifice you know it's it's a, a very unusual organization and that uh, it's probably the only organization that's really been able to resist the disruption that every other single media has encountered up until now you know and it's it is sad i guess if you're uh, part of a very comfortable business that continues on a on a untrammeled on a path uh, nicely funded uh, and without any huge uh, metrics to measure yourself against really mm-hmm. so you're very well protected in that regard now that's what's been disrupted now and actually the metric I'm interested in is why I as a licensed payer should have to pay for the BBC to compete with uh, commercial channels who are interested in producing some of these programs why does the price get ramped up why doesn't the BBC let that stuff go let match of the day go let um, uh, Bake Off go and concentrate on a much more public service agenda. But then the argument is that's then death by a thousand cuts. Well, what the argument is, is because you pay the licence fee, the BBC's got to be popular because way back in 1957... 
viewing figures for the BBC fell to below 25%. And what then happened was that people quite rightly said, why should I pay the licence fee at all? Because I don't watch it. Nobody watches it. Only, you know, a quarter of the population watch it. Why am I paying for it? So you've got to have a fairly substantial amount of popular programming on the BBC to justify the licence fee. The question is the balance. But also, I mean, what I meant, I get the point you're saying in, in response to what I was saying, but I wasn't saying that people have done anything heroic by committing themselves to the BBC. What I meant was, if you've got 30 years of public service broadcasting programme making in your background, you haven't had to worry for 30 years for all the reasons you just said about getting ratings necessarily. You've just been thinking... How can we make the best programme possible? That's just not true. It is true. No, they do have to worry about ratings. No, some do, sure. But there are a lot of producers at the BBC who their job is, they get given some money, it is very comfortable, and they're just told, make the best programme you can. That doesn't happen in the commercial sector. You have to think about ratings. You have to think about your next job. Well, that's not true either, because, again, given the nature of public service broadcasting and the way the Communications Act is set up, there are areas in public service broadcasting, in ITV and so on, although it's commercial, that are protected. Children's broadcasting, religious yeah, but I'd make the same case for someone who works for Channel Four affairs. News. Yeah, yeah, Channel Four News, same thing. You are, if yeah, you work there for twenty years, you are, have just BBC been making the best show. The is different. All public service broadcasting has got that sort of self-contained area, and what you tend to find is that often non-public service broadcasting, like Sky, actually replicates this. Sky News has absolutely no reason to exist except the fact that it's protected and paid for by the organisation. And does a wonderful job, by the way, a much better job, in my opinion, than the BBC, twenty-four. Our news. And it so, was certainly the first because I was the managing yeah, there editor. Is, no, but there's, I didn't there know is that a, I would have uh, <laughs> taken more a, even more respect. <laughs> even more. But then you'll know, Liz, that there is a commercial reason, isn't there? Even if Sky News hemorrhages money, the point is that you can say what you just said. The it's point is, like with Sky Arts, that they say, look, aren't we great? That's not a commercial reason. It that, is. People subscribe to Sky because they well, think it's blue chip it's because of Sky News. In, it's, it's actually reputational. You can argue yes, that exactly. reputation is part of commercial. But it's, it's exactly the same thing. It's a desire for whatever reason to do things that are not for direct commercial benefit. Okay. And if some of these big shows do go out for commercial tender, some of them are... Um, which shows would you like to see actually get a refresh from the open market, even if BBC Studios ended up Let's be careful. It? I don't think they'll necessarily get a refresh, and I think that could be a terrible mistake. For example, with the Bake Off, I think if they change it too drastically at Channel 4, they'll lose it. Look what happened to Top Gear. Mm. Mm. Well, well I mean, even go out well, of all they've got left is the cake and the marquee. Yeah. <laughs> I think they have, and, they have and, to change and, it. And, oh, and, and, Paul and, Hollywood, and media's third scouser. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right, let's talk about ITV, because over there, the BBC's former head of drama has announced her first drama slate for what they used to call Channel 3. Uh, Polly Hill uh, has this week showcased shows by established writers, including Trauma by Mike Bartlett. Uh, He also wrote Dr Foster for The Beeb. And the people behind Channel 4's Indian Summers, they're a husband and wife team scripting a family thriller called Next of Kin. Uh, Matt, they're, they're, they're putting their weight behind these shows, ITV, six to eight parts, each yep. of them, so quite a big budget commitment. Yep. Do they sound like the right kind of things? Well, people are saying they're not very risk-taking. What I think is interesting is the emphasis on the writing skill that they bring into ITV. And this is, this is a new thing, and this is definitely following trend from America uh-huh. where all of the power is vested in the writers you know all those executive producers you see at the end of the Sopranos and <laughs> The Hill and all of these great shows they're the writers now that's not been the case in the UK before all of the power has been in the commissioning management team and I think that doesn't necessarily le- lend itself to absolute quality so I would bet that these guys will produce some terrific shows and it's not unprecedented 
seeing as we're on a Scouse theme, you've got Jimmy McGovern who's done fantastic work like this, Alan Bleasdale, Willie Russell. You know, there's a, but there is, writer-led. There is yeah. a history of writer-led stuff and uh, will lead to, to some high-quality output, I'm sure. Yeah, and that's a good point, isn't it, Liz? When people recall the glory days of drama, particularly ITV drama, you have to go back to kind of Dennis Potter and that sort of thing. And that, that is, you know, it is the writer-led stuff. Well, not necessarily. I mean, I'm interested in what Matt was saying. You mentioned mainly blokes, but Kay Meller has been writing for ITV for about, I would say, 30 years and is mm. an incredibly good established writer. I'm really glad to see her in this slate. There was Deborah Margak as well, who actually wrote Tulip Fever. That was her most fav- famous novel. She did the best exotic Marigold Hotel or whatever it was. <laughs> and so she's really famous and been there a long time. What I like about what Kay Meller says is that she's going to write something which will show more older women on screen I mean I would like that wouldn't I but it's one no, of the but great I think the audience would like that too and that's well, been one of the successes of Happy Valley I think one of the, the great ironies is that the person most likely to be watching TV particularly ITV is a woman over 50 in the north of England the person least likely to be on television is a woman, a woman over 50 in the north of England and even loose women shows that, that things are changing and I think it's great that Kay Mellor's up there and, and the showrunners the, the writers are there too I think it looks really good and let's not forget, ITV has had some great successes anyway recently. I mean, Victoria, mm. I well, think, has been absolutely that, great. Obviously. Downton before yeah. that. But Victoria particularly, I think, was a really interesting move. And National Treasure on Channel 4. As those two have been my sort of star dramas of this autumn. Yeah, and again, I mean, National Treasure written by Jack Thorne, wasn't it? Who's very much like if you were going to pick a sort of young writer who's the next Jimmy McGovern, it's probably someone like that. But I don't, I don't think I don't think ten years ago we could have shipped off a dozen great writing talents like this, and and that those names would have any recognition out in the real world. Uh, yeah. But they do today, so I just think that's indicative of a real shift towards where the power should be. It's the guys who are creating the the actual words the only single creative process is the writer everything else is an adaptation of that person's work and I think it's great that the power is now vested and there. the great the great days of drama that you recall you know Brideshead Revisited and uh, Jewel in the Crown at, at ITV they were very much based on books that were already written they were adaptations of books whereas this is absolutely fresh stuff with with tv as the medium i think it's brilliant yeah i guess what's maybe changed in the last 10 years then since you know the time you were saying matt where we wouldn't be able to name writers it, it might be box sets totally. basically isn't totally. it yeah. it's, it's people catching up on drums they can sell this around the world totally and you know that's got an impact on what we were just talking about about the sort of the fixed points of of scheduling that uh, actually are becoming less and less relevant because people simply haven't got the time to watch them because they're watching all this great stuff on HBO or on Sky Atlantic or wherever you might find it. But they say that's why the Scandi Noir came yeah. in, didn't they? Yeah. Because all the other stuff, they, the prices were racking up so the BBC and other broadcasters were looking for somewhere new and guess what? It was in Scandinavia. OK, well we might be embracing the digital culture world here but we've still got a basically linear format where we've got a commercial break in a second but when we come back here's the tease. Uh, we will be talking about some more radio stories, waving goodbye to the fake shake and we will be doing our media quiz the media podcast is brought to you by media masters let's see who's on their show this week with paul blanchard let's spin that wheel Why, it's none other than rod sharp the presenter of bbc radio 5 live's overnight show up all night uh, let's hear a clip of him talking about his first job at BBC News. Within months, even within the first month, we were meeting some of the biggest names in the game. I mean, Robin Day sat down with us, I should say Sir Robin, of course, and he told us all about how important it was to ask prosecutorial questions. And, and that was the, the, the mould 
that so many BBC presenters came up in. And if you look at Jeremy Paxman, well, he was a news trainee about two or three courses before us. And he, too, had the sit down with Robin Day and was told to ask prosecutorial questions. I, at some point, departed from the old prosecutorial Kool-Aid, and I, I don't do that as a general rule. I only do that if I get really annoyed. Rod Sharp there. When I used to present an overnight show on LBC, I was very jealous of Rod because he broadcasts from the east coast of America and therefore doesn't have to go to bed at 6am. You can hear all the Media Masters interviews and they're well worth a listen and they're all free at mediamasters.fm. Right, more media news now, and let's start with radio. Uh, As we mentioned briefly on our last podcast, James Purnell is to be the new head of radio at the BBC. Uh, Purnell is said to have been awarded the post as a thank you for his work negotiating the corporation's licence fee settlement with the government. Liz, let's just deal with the insider gossip bit of this. Could he be the next DG? Is that what this is, really? Well, he's certainly tipped for it, isn't he? He's one of a small group of people going in that direction. And the difficulty is that he's not a broadcaster, and I think that's something which w- would be held against him, really. Yeah, never uh, made a radio programme. Never made a radio Never made a news package. I mean, you, you can argue that as a strategist and so on, it wouldn't necessarily matter, but the, it, it does stick in your throat, and you do think, come on, this is a profession Head of radio, we do, one of the biggest radio organisations in the world. Yeah. A bit it, weird, it's, isn't it? It is a bit weird. It's possibly not the most sensible move in the world, especially when you've got all the other corporate strategy stuff at the BBC. But I think in order to get him into the DG role, he has to somehow take on the mantle of being a programmer. So this sort of faux appointment is is the way of doing it. Yeah, and the weird thing is, so Tony Hall, the DG, has said there's going to be a new position that is called head of radio rather than head of radio and education, or whatever they've given James Pennell, which will be directly underneath him, which I think basically is the job of head of radio, which will go to someone who knows what they're doing. (laughs) Getting their hands dirty. Very weird, isn't it? It is all very weird as well, but it's it's a weird organisation, and it's going through very weird times because the governance at the BBC is, is really, really fluid at the moment because there's going to be a, a unitary board which will be regulated by Ofcom. There's going to have to be a raft of new people at Ofcom. And it's very late in the day. I mean, it's October. And unless I'm very much mistaken, this starts in January and we really don't seem to know where it's going. I'm not quite sure whether DCMS is on this. Of course, they've got a new minister, Karen Bradley, who I've met and seems extremely accessible, pleasant and capable, but it's late in the day, I think. So it'll be very interesting to see where this one goes. And Matt, he, James Pennell, is a former Labour minister. That's not without its problems for the BBC. Well, I d- well, sure. I mean, I think it's a bit unfair on James Pennell. All of the sort of subtext on this is that he's not smart enough to have a creative idea about <laughs> no. radio. He's not. He's not got the integrity to keep his politics out of the programming, and uh, and it's all a payoff for doing a great job uh, for organising the um, the new licence. So yeah, well I summarised. Think, I, I just think it's all a little bit. I don't know the guy. Uh, I don't think any of those things are necessarily true. He's clearly very intelligent, a mover and a shaker. Maybe it's a good thing for radio to get a little bit of a fresh look. But, but. I, I do know the guy, and he is extremely competent and really actually a, a very nice bloke. I just think it's odd. I mean, nobody's saying that there's something that, that, that he's not good enough and therefore is a pretend radio person in that sense. It's just unusual for someone to get to that level in a very creatively based media organisation without ever having made the product. I think the radio industry, people working at the coalface in the radio industry probably are saying he's not good enough. You know, it might be that he has the opportunity to prove himself, but they are saying, why isn't someone running us who knows anything about radio? 
Well, that's a fair point. Presumably, he's got a radio. It's a reasonable point. I mean, he's got a radio. He listens to radio. I mean, but I've got a car, but I can't run forward. Well, they should give you a chance. No, seriously, it 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 is odd, and I think the BBC have got to accept that people are going to ask questions about it, raise their eyebrows about it, and I think in a way it's a shame for James Pennell, who's an extremely competent media strategist, why he has to be given this false title in the sense false in, in the sense of not what he actually does or has done hmm. I think is it's not him that I'm questioning so much as, as the people who gave him the title it does well, seem didn't, odd I mean presumably he wanted the job I mean he didn't have to take it so it's a job he he has asked for that title well, he's gone for he's it asked for it I mean, maybe well. the reason Matt that you are more convinced about this is you see this more as a Political appointment than a kind of hands-on making radio. A legitimate political. I mean, that is kind of what I it is. Don't isn't it? see it. No, 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 no. I don't at all. Uh, I, I, my issue with, and the reason we're talking about it, and the way you framed the conversation was that it was some sort of stitch up, or it was some kind of payoff, and 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 you know the idea that a guy who hasn't got a background in radio can't successfully run a radio business I don't think is true. You can look at all sorts of people. You know, Carolyn McCall had no idea about airlines until she left The Guardian to run EasyJet and has done a fantastic job running EasyJet. You know, there are skill sets about running a business skill sets around managing people and skill sets are about being creative that are not platform centric Actually, and to be fair, look at us Whoever thought I could be an academic There you go Case proof. Well, you're you're a don't write man. And two scousers <laughs> who've blagged their way into meaningful jobs. We Anything should just possible. shut up, I think. Actually, yeah. uh, whilst we're talking about money, sort of, uh, now because James Pennell's doing the job and there's going to be a junior as well, do you think the two of them combined are going to be paid more or less than Helen Bowden, who was the outgoing head of radio? I think it's probably more. It's Maybe it's one more. of these things we should ask about, like the talent's pay. Yeah, but it, I bet that wasn't in the charter, was it? That he negotiated. What, now you're suggesting that he has what stitched up the charter for his own personal gains. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't gains. Well, you, you interpreted that. I said. No. I, possibly I, I think you should be in the tabloid papers, <laughs> Matt. <laughs> well, I spent 18 years on the Daily Mirror, oh, so that's where, I, that's where I that's where I quality grew up. shows. Yeah. Uh, sticking with we won the newspaper of the year four times while yeah. I was there, so that was true. not bad. Taking that humble brag by the horns, <laughs> let's move on to talk about awards. In fact, because uh, on Wednesday the Radio Academy are bringing back their annual awards after a two-year break. There have been big changes, though. They're no longer called the Sonys, uh, because the sponsor dropped out a couple of years ago. They are now called the Audio and Radio Industry Awards, or ARIAs, although no one seems to have noticed that there is a massive Australian award ceremony also called ARIAs, so it's not very good for Google. They've also moved the ceremony to Leeds. They've reduced the number of categories to a more manageable 16, so we don't have to sit through everyone's speeches. But perhaps the biggest story is Global, the biggest commercial radio operator in the UK, isn't part of it. They haven't submitted themselves for any of the awards. Liz, is that a problem for an award ceremony that's supposed to be the standard bearer for the industry? It's difficult, isn't it? I noticed somebody had said that Global was behaving like a sulky kid and not taking part, which is perhaps one way of looking at it. Global also have started something called the Global Academy, which is a a genuine real state school which promotes the radio industries, which is, is sort of exciting and I think quite risky at the same time. It is as if they're going to try and create their own fiefdom that isn't part of anything else and on that level I do think it's a shame but there is something else going on in the ether I think which is that there are so many awards, so many people giving out awards, so many people being asked to judge awards, maybe in a way it's quite brave to say well we don't want to be part of it there's too much of this about, I don't know for me the jury's out, I I don't know Global well enough to know what the real ethos is there and I can see it from both sides really. But But there is no one 
industry standard bearer. That's the problem. Is it's the closest thing we had to it? Does that matter? I think it probably matters for the people who are making the programmes. That's the thing. You know, for people who are working on the kind of shows at LBC or Classic <laughs> FM or the specialist music shows on Capital that might get nominated, you know, that's a real, you know, boost, isn't it, to your ego? I think, yeah. Well, I was only going to pitch in to say that I think that's where it'll hurt and it'll might come to hurt global is if you do have journalists and broadcasters, we're all egomaniacs, you know, and if you think that you can't, get an award you're not in the frame for an award that might have a damaging effect on morale people might drift off to other places i remember uh, when i was at the daily mirror when piers morgan was editor and one year we didn't win anything at the at the press awards uh, and piers decided we were going to boycott it the next year you know it was a real kind of sulk and we held our own awards and of course daily mirror <laughs> cleaned the room and, and and we announced the next day's paper that the mirror had won the daily mirror newspaper of the year award you know and all of this it was all a little bit pathetic and did feel a little bit sulky and of course we fell back into line the year after one slight detail to that was that the press awards did recognize the more tabloidy press approaches as worthy of awards as well because of that so maybe global's just trying to send a little bit of a message here that you know commercial radio doesn't really get a look in i noticed some of the categories only have bbc entries you know it's ridiculous lbc you know a global um uh, entity does fantastic broadcasting you know that would go i think up against much of the bbc's yeah, but if you're not going to enter then if you're, you're not going to enter either. then you can't be in the frame but perhaps they do feel that it's biased towards i, I do uh, think a, there is quite a lot of this about in some of the big organizations the feeling that, that the big beasts do dominate and for many years when i started at sky news years ago there was this feeling you're never going to win an award at sky news because you were on the outside and there was some really difficult awards ceremonies that i went to where you felt well hang on a minute sky really ought to be up there now that seems ridiculous sky mm. so established and so good but it is hard to break in and and also at the same time it's fragmenting because so many awards are around it's i think the whole award business needs perhaps to be reviewed maybe we need a government organization looking at awards it's a bit like boxing isn't it you know there used to be one heavyweight yeah. champion of the world now there's six you know it's not the same is who it? cares um, and you've had a look at the nominations matt anyone you'd tip for a win well, I, uh, I was listening to Melvin Bragg talk about Radio 4 in the House of Lords the other day, and I have to say, he said something at the end of it. He listed the programming of, of Radio 4 and said at the end of it, you know, it's so brilliant that we take it for granted, and he's absolutely right. It's a stunning channel, and I saw the Today programme there for, um, for news, and I think that would be a shoe in for me. And it's got lots more women on now. Loads of women. Great. Right. Neither of you mentioned the uh, podcast of the year category. I noticed, but uh, well, are you oh, up it's, for that? it's obvious. There's, there, there's, a, there's a nominee that I'm partial to in there, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll let you know how that goes. Uh, one more radio story to cover now. Uh, you may have seen uh, radio presenter John Holmes on the front page of the Mail on Sunday last week. Uh, well, Liz, explain to us what happened there. Well, he lost his job on the program. And on the Now Show. On the Now Show. And he said it was because he was a white middle-class man or a white man of a certain age. I he think. said that's what he'd been told. Uh, well, he said that was what he'd been told, but there doesn't seem to be very clear evidence of what was actually said. He tweeted about it, and he's got a certain sort of head of feeling up about it. The broadcasters vehemently denied this and said that it is just to do with freshening up the programme. So it's one of these things that's really rather a difficult one to find out who said what to whom, really. Is it the programmer's right to refresh the programme on the basis of gender, though, anyway? 
I mean, I don't see what's wrong with that, really. And I speak as a white male. If someone says to me, look, we need some whatever it is, in this case, uh, it's, women it's, it's or very, more ethnic faces, I'd be like, well, OK. It, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, if you do it the way it was done with Miriam O'Reilly in Countryfile, then you end up in court. I think, you, you, you know, you've got to obey the law of the land. And at the same time, you might want to move things in a certain direction. It's a question of, of tact and how you do it and, and why you do it. In the end, you do have a duty, particularly, I think, as a public service broadcaster, to reflect the population. For example, 14% of the UK is an ethnic minority, recognisable ethnic minority, and that obviously should be reflected both on screen and off screen. And in order to do that, you may have to change lineups here and there. But to actually single out an individual and say, you know, your face doesn't fit, that's just not good management. Well, especially after 18 years on the show. I mean, that's the thing. It's been a very long time. I thought what was really tough was the sort of snarky uh, response the BBC put out which is said you know although they are committed to diversity uh, presenters are chosen on merit and there was a clear undertone that that he wasn't good that, enough that, which that, was that, worse. that's where he had fallen short which mm. is a shame you know I think he's done a great job he's been there an awful long time but in their defense I mean he did actually provoke that response he did didn't that's he? true and and but you're right Liz you're absolutely right in the when you look at these things on a one-to-one basis uh, they're cruel and hard to take but there's no doubt that if we are brilliantly moving towards a recognition of the diversity that's unrecognised in our media and the consequences of that lack of diversity, then you're going to have to have balance. And I'm afraid then middle-aged white men like me, like you, sorry, I'll call you middle-aged. Just, just on the cusp. But, but the, uh, you know, we are proportionately going to lose out uh, in the great scheme of things. Fantastic. I think I, if I could just repeat something which um, a BBC editor said to me about four years ago when we were talking about diversity, and this is absolutely true, he said, um, I really do want to have more black people in my newsroom, but I really, really do want the sort of black person who's been to Oxford. And Is that what he said? That's what he said. Whoa. And it's very, very difficult because often if you're looking at people's background, then mm. they're not going to reach those sort of goals yeah. in the first place. And it does make it terribly difficult. It, it's not just a question of the diversity It's a, in terms of straightforward colour, say. It's a whole cultural thing. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, on Radio 4, let's be honest, most of the, quote, ethnic voices that you hear are people that have been to Oxford, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. You know, and they actually sound you know, exactly the same as the white guys. It, it's so important. The danger in these conversations is that people think it's like some sort of quota thing and it's political correctness and all of this. It has real consequences out in the real world because people don't feel represented. Mm. Stuff goes through that people don't see is shockingly awful. I remember uh, my first week at the Daily Mirror and someone laying out. It was a very white newsroom at that time. Actually, Piers, to his credit, did a huge amount to increase diversity in that newsroom. And someone laid out a a headline on a story about a black guy who had this kind of uh, the pigmentation condition that Michael Jackson had. And the headline he proposed to run on it was, I used to be black, but I'm all white now. <laughs> and we looked at it and there were people in the newsroom going, you can't do that. But this was defended as, of course, it's just funny. It's just funny. Oh, the and, banter argument. And five years before that, that headline, I think, would have got through. And it has a real effect on people in society. You know, you're reading that about yourself mm. and thinking, my God, you know, this is a country that just doesn't understand me. I don't feel part of it. Gets you into Trump and locker yeah. room banter, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and yeah, all yeah. of let's, that. Let's swerve that. Whoa. <laughs> uh, but let's, sticking with the tabloid press, let's talk about uh, one of the best-known um, non-white reporters, although until last week no one had seen his face and that is uh, Maza Mahmoud, the fake sheikh. Convicted last week, of course, and now his cover has been blown by the national press who have all released photos of this previously highly secretive journalist. Even The Sun, his old employer, released a photo of him now. Matt, this guy's a bit of a Fleet Street legend and the era's at an end now. 
Y- yes, it's definitely at an end. Uh, you know, Maz and Mahmood, when, when we were going up on the mirror uh, in the late 90s, was, you know, the envy of, of every tabloid newspaper because he had this incredible ability to really pull people into his confidence and to and then to stitch them up marvelously you mm. know and i have to say in those days you look back and you and my recollection is that the people he was stitching up all seemed to deserve stitching up but of course pressure builds on your career personally you know and the targets get broader and broader and a newsroom that we know uh, was exceptionally demanding of of results um can make you twist things take shortcuts and and unfortunately we for Masma mood we've gone into a public environment where that's not tolerated anymore and he he hasn't changed his behavior society's changed that's the thing and he's got caught out uh now as regards losing anonymity i'm afraid when you get a criminal criminal conviction that's what happens but interestingly, I notice that students that are coming out of courses like the ones I'm running are being recruited more and more for undercover work or to go um, into organisations and pretend to be something they're not, which is quite dangerous and difficult. Mm. And you've only got to look at Sam Allardyce, you know, very recently. Mm. I mean, the idea of, perhaps entrapment is far too strong a word, but of catching people out like this is still very strong. And the same kind mm. of sting, in a way, the yeah. foreign businessman, you know, yeah. something a bit exotic and but they just a, don't think they're a journalist. But the difference is public interest, isn't it? And I remember this argument being... You know, is it interesting to the public or is it in the public's interest? And there is a massive, massive difference that not all tabloid journalists are, are really th- thought through in in the uh, yes. Late I mean, 90s. catching out one woman on a drug sting, you know, now, to Lisa is is that really important in the great scheme of things? On the other hand, exposing the football manager yeah. as uh, being a bit dodgy, maybe that totally, is really important. Totally, I ran the investigation at the Mirror where we had a uh, a guy working as a butler to the Queen. Oh, for I three remember months. that yeah. guy. Yeah, Ryan Parry. Ryan, Ryan Parry. Parry. Those pictures were amazing. And it was. Although, are they in the public's interest? Well, totally. I'll pictures tell you why. I'll Queen's tell department. you why it's in the public interest. Why? Because Ryan Parry got that job by applying from a an advert in a, in the classified ads and the security checks for Ryan impressive. Parry to be a personal assistant to the Queen of England were absolutely appalling. They phoned up a guy in a pub and said, Do "You know him," and someone said, "Yeah, he's a nice lad," and that was it. And Ryan was. Uh, butler to the queen for three months and pulled out when george w bush arrived for a state visit so the public interest was absolutely manifest fair enough it happened to be a fantastic the, story the, the fun well. bit was looking at the queen's pincushions well i'll it? tell you well it was and, and seeing that she ate her uh, breakfast from tupperware jars and all of this business. but to touch on what liz just said what's really interesting is how that investigation was a hugely expensive affair for the daily mirror it might have cost 150 grand all in right over the course of the investigation they can't afford to do that anymore. They haven't got the staff to send them off message for three months and, and, and try and take a punt on a result. So what's happening is investigative journalism is being privatised. It's going out of the mainstream media mm. and we're seeing it all over the place where the Centre for Public Integrity in Washington, for instance, is coordinating the Panama Papers, Wiki investigations, leaks. WikiLeaks, and we're seeing it being outsourced almost, that mm. responsibility, which is interesting because, you know, it's it's a, a core part of a newspaper's makeup is to investigate and expose. You outsource it, it changes yeah. the beast a bit. But it can't be monopolised by newspapers. I mean, television investigations are really big. It's just something that journalists really like to do, whether they've got a towel on their head or not. I have to say, just, just in defence of newspapers, I know you weren't offending newspapers, but... The, the level of investigations that come out of newspapers as opposed to any other 
medium is astonishingly disproportionate. You know, it is meat and drink to newspapers, and uh, they're the best at it in the world. So long may it continue. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. Well, that is nearly it for this week's edition of the Media Podcast. But wait, hooray! There's time for the media quiz. This week it's entitled Future Proof. Three newspaper groups have tried to predict Fleet Street's future and this week they announced thrilling new projects that they hope will save them uh, and, more grudgingly, their industry. Your job, contestants, is to tell me which group announced these projects. So for each project, what group was it? Best of three, buzzing with your name. Uh, So Liz, you'll say... I'll say Matt. And Matt, you'll say... I'll say Liz. (sighs) The winners are Ore and Joanna, the losers Ed and Katya. Here's question number one. Which newspaper launched its own virtual reality team this week? Liz. Liz. The Guardian. Correct. Uh, After showcasing a virtual experience of solitary confinement at Sundance this year, uh, Guardian editor Kath Viner has given VR the thumbs up. Is that the future of newspapers? I, I don't get it at all. I'm really sorry. I'll have to ask Matt. I think it's a virtual reality in which The Guardian is making loads of money. That's what they're doing. They're all putting their headsets on and the revenues are flying in. And you can all sleep at night. <laughs> I've actually seen VR in action. Uh, I have to say it is transformative. It's when amazing, you, isn't it? When, I, mean, we, I saw something in Aleppo where you were in the in the rubble with the, yeah. the white helmet rescuers digging people out. It was... It changed everything. And when you see, uh, you get that experience, you realise actually how distant everything else is, even frontline reporting, how distant you are when you're in your armchair, but you glue it onto the front of your face and you're there, it changes. It's like an empathy machine. It's extraordinary. Is there a taste and decency issue around it, though? Because, you know, to to get that footage in Aleppo, you have to mount eight GoPros to a tripod. You know, it's it's a bit more intrusive than a traditional war. Well, I I mean, I don't don't know, to be honest. I I mean, the kit, you've seen it, it's not much bigger than a Rubik's Cube. It's sort of like all those GoPros mounted around, as you say, in a cube. I think anything that can bring a story closer to people and make them realise what's Absolutely I don't think it's on. intrusive yeah. at all. I think it's part of, of what we do. What I do think is odd is a newspaper group doing it, but maybe I'm wrong there. Well, I think that, you know, The Guardian's great for innovation and for trying new forms of uh, experimentation. We used to joke at The Mirror that The Guardian was like our um, 
research you know, and, and development. R&D R &D was, the, was the, the word I was looking for. And The Guardian and the BBC spend all the money, find out what works, and then other people pick it up. Question number two. Which newspaper group believes the future of news is 12 reporters and four editors covering 11 local newspapers and eight news websites? Oh, this is the... Buzzing uh, with your name. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the local group. Oh, I've lost it now. News Quest. News it is Quest. News Quest. Matt yeah. said that grudgingly. You knew the answer. You just didn't want to buzz in enthusiastically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm speaking to somebody who knows how tough the market is. Yeah. Uh, what I will say is that local news is incredibly important, and I don't believe that getting more distant from the community is the answer. Um, it's a, a, such a challenging market, though, that um, I think you'd have to look inside the books of NewsQuest before you could comment fairly on what's going on there. But is it reasonable to run 11 local newspapers with 12 reporters, whatever budget is going on behind the scenes? Is that actually preferable to closing them down? Well, it's preferable to closing them down, I hope. Because the NUJ are saying basically not. But then what, the, they would say that, wouldn't they? Well, I don't know. Um, it's it's just so tough. It's so tough, and I don't envy anybody who's in that situation. And my job is chief content officer of Archant, which has similar challenges in the in the country. It's tough, and I wouldn't like to put myself on the hook for for saying uh, one way or the other. To be honest, there are lots of wonderful, valuable, fabulous things that we want, but if people aren't prepared to pay for them, we can't have them. Okay, and question number three, I'd call it the tiebreak, except, Liz, you've clearly won because there are only three questions. Nonetheless, all to play for, and here it is. Which paper is going global without the internet? The New Buzzing York. when you know the answer. Oh, Matt, Matt, Matt. Matt, yes. No, you stole it with your name. No, no, Matt got no, it, yeah. You got the rules. <laughs> you still won. Because I know this one. Yeah, it's go on. It's the uh, New York Times, am I right? It is, yes. The New York Times has expanded world news coverage for its international edition. So it's no longer the International New York Times, it's the New York Times International Edition. And you've got to remember that not long ago, it was that wonderful title, the best title in newspapers, the International Herald Tribune. Oh, yes. And uh, you think about... Paris. Uh, oh, and you think about the um, Abouta Souffle with the girl walking through with the International Herald Tribune t-shirt on and the whole heritage of that. And I used to go and sit in a cafe and pretend I was Ernest Hemingway and read the Herald Tribune. It was a great shame when that went. And, but this is their strategy to have one brand, one uh, entity that they can commercialise around the world. And the New York Times is it. I thought you were Ernest Hemingway. I'm, gr I'm growing the beard. I'm growing the beard. I'm here on False Bridge, or you're here on False Bridge. I was very glad, by the way, the New York Times covered the New European. And, oh, uh, did they? Yes, they did. A massive big write-up in their business section. That yeah. was a big moment for us. And is there a New European International Edition coming along soon? We sell in Switzerland, Luxembourg, France, Germany and Belgium. Liverpool. Not Liverpool. And yeah, Liverpool. Of course we sell in Liverpool. The Sorry, Great Republic of Liverpool. We, however, are available wherever in the world there's an internet connection, so we still win. Uh, that is our show today. Thank you very much, Liz Howell. Thank you, Matt Kelly. Great to see you again. And you can subscribe to us for free on your podcast app of choice. We're on iTunes, Acast, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you find your pods. And as you're now up to date with us, why not get inspired by listening to the latest episode of Media Masters, Rod Sharp, the guest, this week. Our producer is Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Rockford became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the city of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.